National Archives podcast series. This talk is called The Legacy of Secrecy, Experiences from the Stasi Records Archive. It was presented by Dagmar Hoverstedt on Friday the 16th of August 2019 at the National Archives Q. I'm Steve Burgess, I'm Head of Events and Exhibitions here at the National Archives, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you all here for this talk, The Legacy of Secrecy. Our vast collection here at the National Archives covers all sorts of original documents relating to the Cold War. We've got political memos, spy confessions, civil defence posters, even a letter from Winston Churchill to the Queen. And as part of our Cold War season, we are delighted to be joined by Dagmar Hofstad. Dagmar is the spokesperson for the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi Records. She previously worked as a journalist and TV producer in Berlin and LA, and in fact she started her career working for the BBC during the fall of the war in November 1989. She's also worked across in California, where she covered US affairs for German television before returning to Berlin to take up her current post. Today, Dagmar will be reflecting on the experiences of opening a secret archive to the public and what can be learned from both the records and the process of taking something that was always meant to be secret and then making it publicly accessible. That's all from me, Dagmar, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm actually very surprised and delighted to see so many people here today. I wasn't quite sure uh, Friday afternoon, 2 p.m. in London, who would be interested in the Stasi archives, but um, <laughs> I am pleasantly surprised. Thank you for, uh, for your interest. Yes, Britain's Cold War revealed. Uh, what does that have to do with the Stasi? What, I'm, what am I doing here? But as you might have seen in the exhibition, which I think is quite brilliant, is that the uh, Cold War is a period of paranoia and secrecy. And uh, the archive I'm here to represent is, is representing exactly that. It represents secrets and a state built on the paranoia, only this paranoia was against their own citizens. And uh, Cold War and Revelation, those are both terms that work for the Stasi records as well. It was the end of what is called the Cold War that made this archive accessible and possible. And in what we do for 30 years now is in a way an endless revelation of what formerly were state secrets. So we make accessible what was meant to be secret um, and never to be seen anywhere outside of this archive. So what I want to try to do in the next 40, 35, 40 minutes is take you on a brief tour around the archive and its history. It's a little difficult. The archive is a couple of hundred kilometers a miles um, east of here to make it come alive. But I, I just try to tell the history, what we do today and why it came about. And I brought a few little archival pieces and traces that have to do with Britain. So I have structured the presentation into three parts. And uh, first is, what was the Stasi? How did it work? And you can notice by the little subtle flag there that I will also uh, allude a tiny little bit to how the British showed up. Uh, secondly, I wanted to see how did the, its records, the record of the Stasi, ever become public? How can you open up 40 years of secret documentation to 
the world, so to speak. We will understand a little better what I mean by that. You can't just walk up and take any file out of our archive. There is an order to this, um, just like in any other archive, but it's quite amazing. In principle, uh, this archive is open to anybody who has a research question. How did that ever come about? It, um, this is a little revelation ahead of time, it took a revolution to make this happen. And lastly, I want to go a little bit into what do we do with it today and tomorrow, since we've been um, handling these records and accessing them for 30 years. All right, so let's move to part one. And you see, I'll interweave history in the archive a little bit and try to make the archive come alive through that. What is the Stasi? It's in German colloquially the abbreviation of the Ministry for State Security. Quite an obvious term, every state needs security. Um, and here the fundamental difference is in a state where only one party was meant to hold control, the Communist Party, or in East Germany it was called the SED, the Socialist Unity Party. It considered itself the shield and sword of the party not in protection of the people necessarily, that was then secondary, but in protection as a shield and sword of the party, as you can also see in the symbol that uh, it used for its own ministry. It was founded in February of 1950, um, about five months after the founding of East Germany, in October of 1949, four years after the end of World War II. And in the very end, 1989, it had about uh, 91,000 employees, officers mostly, it was a military organization, and double the amount of unofficial collaborators. It's a bit of a clumsy term. In German, it's called inoffizielle Mitarbeiter, um, unofficial employees, EM in abbreviation. That was a very important uh, part and tool of information gathering to understand what the people were thinking um, and in a society that is not as technologically advanced as we are today. Um, human intelligence, so to speak, the, what other people know about their neighbors, friends and family members uh, was quite the way to gather information. It is important to me to, to state this point that state security means securing the party power or securing that the party stays in power and that's an idea that relates back to 1917 from the very beginning the communist idea felt itself under threat from the bourgeois society and very early on there was a secret police in service of the revolution or the continuation and the establishment of communist rule uh, called the Cheka. It was led by Felix Dzerzhinsky who was um, then working with Lenin and this idea of paranoia of that that idea or the, the the dream of socialism coming to fruition was constantly under threat and had to be protected all the time is very important because it, it describes the relationship the party in power had to its own people. There was continuously distrust. At any moment the people could not like the idea that communism was the answer and so they had to be controlled and the Stasi, the Ministry for State Security, was its main instrument for that. So out of this basic constellation comes an apparatus, one of these terms that uh, relate to Stasi speak, um, so to say, that was covering a whole country, right? So what we see here to the left is the uh, ministry grounds in East Berlin, in Berlin-Lichtenberg. Um, that was the center. About 7,000 of the 91,000 Stasi employees worked there in the many different departments. At the bottom right, you see the Minister for State Security, Erich Milke. He joined the ministry very early in 1950 and rose to become its um, head 
1957 and never let go of the rules. So by, 19, by November 1989, even when the wall uh, fell, he was still the Minister for State Security, but then the countdown had started only three more days and then he was gone. But it's important to, to see um, this picture in, or um, to remember the grounds because unusual for our archive, we do of course want to store the documents in a place that is um, not humid and cooled to the right degrees, but we also feel that the historic site where these documents lay are, play an important part to the story of the archive. So this is why the historic um, imagery is not to be forgotten, as you'll see him later in the um, presentation. So I wanted to point out there, East Germany was um, divided in 15 districts. Today, Germany in the eastern side has six Länder states, but in those days it were 15 districts. Each district had their own Stasi office and all in 209 county offices also had their own Stasi offices. So it was really all over the country. Not so unusual for a ministry to have uh, affiliations, but this is really to make sure that in each and every um, administrative area of East Germany, people knew the Stasi was around. And that's another important tool of control and power, that um, you give people the feeling that you are everywhere, whether you are or not, and whether you can be or not, is, is not even that important than the idea in your head that they could be anywhere. That was one of, of um, various power tools, but it's not just an imaginary idea of the Stasi. It was m m most certainly uh, very much felt in the everyday life. So why is it so important to be everywhere within your own country? Well, one of the main occupations of the Stasi, next to what would be generally considered state security or foreign intelligence service or general protection of state, was that the enemy was always coming from within. We'll know a little bit more about why that is, but how can you control your own citizens if you distrust them, if you think the, the largest source to endanger the power of the party are your own people, then you have to find out what they think ahead of time so they can never really express their dissent to the ruling party. And one of uh, the early ideas that made that very much possible was June 17, 1953, the People's Uprising. I brought a bunch of pictures from the archive, I just wanted to make sure that, that we understand this is all over the country. It's in Berlin, it's in Dresden, Leipzig, Magdeburg. It was a million people in June 1953 getting out on the streets, fighting the party, um, fighting the Stasi, who was rather small at the time, and say we want free elections, we want unification, we want our rights, and we want to uh, be um, a people that can choose and have freedom of press and not be organized by the um, SED only. These are quite um, impressive. Often this um, June uprising is forgotten, but it was among the first of the uprisings in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, 56 Hungary followed and Poland. Uh, 68 Prague, you all might remember. But the essence of this day, ended by Soviet tanks crushing the uprising, a million people on the street were crushed here, but that it was a disaster for the Stasi. They had not known that the people were so dissatisfied with the ruling class that um, they would rise up like that. And it was demoted into a secretariat, not a ministry anymore, for a couple of years and rose from that with Milke as its minister in 1956 ever stronger. Never again was this supposed to happen that the people would surprise the party and the Stasi in their dissent about uh, the regime. 
But it was also clear to the people that if they would rise up and demand their rights and wanted to free themselves from the one-party rule, tanks would roll and they would be crushed violently. So June 17 became a trauma. In the narrative of East Germany, it was a fascist, fascistly, an organized uprising by the fascists from the West. It had nothing to do with faults in their own system. But people had risen up because they were missing rights and because they didn't have um, enough to eat and were forced to work more for less pay. So there were some economic issues, but mostly it was also an issue of, of granting rights. So June 17, the workers' uprising is very important because from then on, that experience, that trauma for both sides, the citizens as well as the Stasi, became a reference point to not continue express dissent, but retreat into your private life and not well, not never make that happen again. So to go after people in their private lives to make sure you would ahead of time understand when this situation became this critical again. You know, 53 was a few months after Stalin's death. Uh, throughout the 50s, the rule consolidated a little bit, but people got very dissatisfied again by the mid-late 50s and they left East Germany by the thousands and tens of thousands. So by 1961, the next big trauma happened, the building or the fortifying of the wall. East and West Germany and East and West Berlin had already been separated uh, by a border that was not so easy to be crossed, but West Berlin had been an easy way out for a long time. August 13, that easy way out stopped. Um, the Stasi was not in charge of it, it was the military along the border, but it was made, making sure, secured the building of the wall and the enforcement of the wall. And that again to me is, is sort of the second element that changed the way people were able to think and live in East Germany and um, as we often call it in the SED dictatorship. If you grow up in a state that, that declares that if you want to travel west, your own people, your own state will shoot at you because you can't get over that wall, you voluntarily limit your choices or you have to leave or you get into trouble. So in one way or another, knowing that the Stasi was there, making sure you conform to what the party wanted and knowing that you had to limit your idea of world and what your rights are because there's a wall at which you get would get killed were quite forceful instruments to make sure that for 40 years the socialist system worked. All right, so out of these, the experience of June 17 and the building of the wall as an idea of fortifying the rule came the preoccupation of the Stasi with putting its own people under surveillance. So here's just photographs from our archive that shows uh, Stasi officer listening in on phone calls, opening letters, or putting surveillance on people. All of that were measurements that sometimes only um, extended to a smaller minority of very vocal dissidents, but the male control extended to thousands and thousands of people every day, particularly the male between East and West. The Stasi was looking for any form of dissenting voices expressed maybe towards an aunt or an uncle or a friend in West Germany. So that male was often controlled. And today in the archive, we have millions of letters and photographs or microfiche of letters that were sent between East and West mostly. East Germany in the constitution guaranteed postal secrecy. You, you were not supposed to look into letters without procedure, but the Stasi had the freedom and was without any parliamentary or public control to do and to get information on, on whichever way they wanted. So um, 
this idea of putting the own their, your own people under surveillance became in one way or another much more intense and much more delicate and uh, hidden throughout the 70s and 80s. The more East Germany received recognition on the international stage, the more it tried to become the better Germany versus the Federal Republic, the, the more it exchanged with the rest of the world. Right? The wall in the early 60s made sure that not too much information could get in, their own people couldn't leave. Um, but with the opening in the international recognition, you had to open the gates a little more. Exchange with West Germans and the Western world started. Um, British students, British intellectuals, academics went into East Germany. Politicians went into East Germany. So that meant exchange of thought. So more sources to um, make people think twice about the system they were living in. And that meant more forces and in intelligence gathering amongst the people to not let September, uh, to not let a people uprising happen again. I do talk a lot about that the fact that this intelligence uh, or secret body, and we like we, we do call it a secret police because the Stasi was able to arrest its own citizens. They were running 17 pre-child detention prisons all over East Germany. And so they weren't just a body that was gathering intelligence. They were acting upon it only in political contexts. It wasn't expressed verbally in the penal code, but they were a bunch of paragraphs where what the uh, what you would do was so, and, and there's a nice German word for it called a gummi paragraph, so a rubber paragraph, so what, where what you would do could be criminalized even though it was just free speech, right? So insulting the state, that's one of those rubber paragraphs. What does that mean? You know, where, how do you figure out? Robbing a bank is quite clear, um, insulting the state would generally be considered free speech, but you could be penalized for that. So um, that's why we call it the secret police. Of course, the Stasi had other things to do. They also secured the power plants of East Germany. They secured the border when it didn't come towards against their own people, but to the general exchange at the border. And also they had a foreign espionage branch, um, which was called the HVA, the HVA. And this is where British traces in the archives come into play. Uh, the foreign espionage branch was quite successful at the end of East Germany to distance itself from the Ministry for State Security. They basically were able to say, we were the good guys. We did what every other state would do too. We are just espionage and had nothing to do with the spying on your own people, which was which was which is historically and factually not true but because they used a lot of what the interior um, stasi departments did also for their own work they were quite intensely interlinked at the same time here you see the building on the current this is actually not a historic photograph that's a contemporary photograph but these are the the big two blocks built in the early 70s where the hva had their offices in the end they were around 4700 offices in the berlin headquarters and out in the field plus a really undisclosed number of informants, among them certainly British citizens, Americans, um, but a lot of West Germans and East Germans who would travel into the West and uh, participated in information gathering. The uh, two gentlemen to the bottom right, uh, Amisha Wolf, the head of the HVA, also somebody who headed that department from the early 50s until 1986, when he retired, uh, um, something that hasn't still been completely figured out by historians. Why did he retire in um, 1986? 
But uh, the other older gentleman there is Erich Milke, the Minister for State Security, and this happens to be the retirement ceremony for Misha Wolf. He was for the longest time one of the unseen faces of the Cold War. He was the famous head of the espionage branch who um, in 1979 was photographed in Stockholm and then made known, his face was made known. Um, he comes sort of from, um, I would say, communist nobility. His father um, was in Moscow and it's a long line of, of communists in the family. And the relationship between these two guys was uh, notoriously um, uneven. Wolf considered himself a gentleman. He was a very rhetorically gifted man, even though We'll see him speak soon, and that's not one of his brilliant moments, I would say. But um, the HVA was able to destroy most of their records in the peaceful revolution. So what we have on them and how they worked are leftovers. It's partly in um, databases that they left behind, um, in a microfiched index card of all the contacts and sources they had, but every or the majority of the documentation, especially um, the foreign work, they were able to convince the powers at the moment in February of 1990 to allow them to self-destroy. So we have certainly a big hole in our collection when it comes to the foreign espionage activities. Nonetheless, I brought a tiny little piece here from August of 1981, a video uh, where Mr. Wolf welcomes a British citizen who most of you might know, belongs to the Cambridge Five, Mr. Kim Philby. He was then um, a, a retiree, um, had gone to Moscow in the 60s, and uh, in August of 1981, he came to where we today hold our events and gave a speech. And it's not very great, that neither the photography is very great, you watch the cameraman struggle with the camera all the time. Um, it's not very great in terms of audio. When you hear Mr. Philby speak in a little bit, there's a German translation very softly in the background. You can hear Mr. Philby in English. But we, we start with the scene where he enters and everybody's very delighted to see him. And this is an event they recorded for their own internal education and for the fortification of, of spies in this in the in the cause of communism and i to me that's the brilliant of this moment right now here is this video was never meant to leave um, the stasi at all not to speak being presented to you here at the uk national archives so um philby speaks um completely unguarded, um, surrounded by comrades and he might embellish his own record a little bit here um, so that's why that video of about an hour and a half is quite interesting to look but I gave you two little pieces so this is his entrance um, and then we'll hear him talk himself. Liebe Genossinnen, liebe Genossen, es ist uns eine ganz besondere große Freude heute in unserer Mitte den verdienten sowjetischen Kundschafter Genossen Kim Philby begrüßen zu können. Für uns, die wir die großen Traditionen der sowjetischen Kundschafter verehren, pflegen, für uns stets zum Vorbild nehmen. 
it's a sentence that's one of those German sentences that goes on for another five minutes. And it really doesn't come to a different point than that. So. We hear himself speak, but but be aware. Um, now we have to go to the other video. So if you hear uh, Philby speak, um, just remember that um, there is a disconnect between what he says and when he speaks, and when the German voice speaks over him. So um, technically, the Stasi really was not very advanced in recording um, its own events. So that's the, that's the German guy. I must also warn you that I am no public speaker. Almost all my life I've spent trying to avoid publicity of any kind. Well now, on looking back on my career in the enemy camp, this 30-year career in the enemy camp, I see that it falls into four stages, four phases. Uh, first of all, recruitment, the setting of the goal and the approach to the goal. Secondly, achievement of the goal and its consequences. Thirdly, disaster and a time of deep, deep trouble. And uh, fourth, the easing of the situation, the final shock and the escape to Moscow. Uh, looking back to my recruitment, I think that the strangest thing about it is the fact that I was recruited at all. I had no access to any secret information. I had no job, and I didn't even know where my job would be. The only reasons for taking me on were that I had worked for nearly a year for the illegal Communist Party in Austria, and that I had impeccable bourgeois origins and bourgeois education. So you see that it was essentially a long-range project, uh, no immediate rule. Yeah, there's a there's a hundred ninety. It's about ninety minutes of that. So um, I'm sure there's you know there's some interesting stuff there because I think in um, in in this environment, sure that nobody outside would ever see and watch this, and surrounded by people that admired him, for whom he became a hero for what he did. Um, I think he he had an opportunity to. Uh, give his own narration and his own voice to a story that I don't think was always all that glorious. I thought it was interesting. He refers to himself as having worked for the KGB uh, until 1983, even though that does not make any sense um, that he worked so long. But, you know, if you look at his, his actual history or what other historians found out about him, there's a different version of what he does. But anyway, this is just a little small detail of what we can still find about um, this uh, Cold War period of espionage, and I find this particularly interesting. It's obviously a male story, uh, largely, not only, but largely, and uh, the men that you could see in that pan along the front row were the party secretary of the Ministry for State Security, the head of different departments, and uh, it was the way they tried to conserve their ideals and ideas and their heroes. Um, there's there's a lot more in, in the archive, among them a different story of why a then young historian called Timothy Garden Ash, who uh, came to East Berlin in the early 80s to study, and uh, 10 years later, 15 years later, was able to look into his Stasi files and tell the story of how a British um, citizen 
was was surrounded by unofficial collaborators who reported on him and found that sturdy friends and professors that he encountered were actually also given information to the Stasi. He wrote a book about it called The File in 1991, 1998 or 97. Um, that's quite interesting because he didn't only just consult the records that the Stasi left behind on him. Um, he also then visited the people that he had encountered during his early 80s studies in East Berlin and, and made him reflect a lot about what secrecy is about, what an intelligence body is about, uh, what East Germany was about. And he did connect it also to an attempt at recruiting him for the British services here. So, um, you know, that's that's certainly also a Cold War story, but it's an interesting way of, of looking at the records relating to my own personal story and putting it in the larger context of this. I'm sure there'll be some question about that as well. So this is sort of um, making the little uh, line at the what was the Stasi, how did it work? And now I want to introduce part two. How did these records that were so important um, to be kept secret, how did they, how did these state secrets actually become uh, available? And it did take a revolution, the peaceful revolution of 1989. We are celebrating this year the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall. So already 30 years ago that that happened. And it started in the summer of 1989. You can maybe trace the beginning to June 17, 1953, when the people for the first time went to the streets. But then it took decades for enough people and new generations to gather the courage to stand up against, against the system. But there are many individual steps, individual people, things that happen, so it's kind of hard to say when it actually happened. But in 1989, a number of, of smaller and then increasing bigger events took course, and among them is the enormous migration movement, south of the border. Um, East Germans went to the Czech Republic, Czechoslovak Republic at the time, to Hungary and left East Germany. It was tens of thousands of people. At the same time that people were fed up and left because the Iron Curtain started to be raised, the opposition people, the dissident voices, wanted to change the country from within. So very carefully, slowly, demonstrations started already in September, and the, um, the, 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 they swelled. More and more people joined those who started in small groups and churches and spilled out on the streets. The largest um, decisive demonstration was October, 7, uh, October, 9, October 9, 1989 in Leipzig. There were around 70,000 people, possibly more, on the streets. Um, some courageous young men filmed this demonstration, were able to smuggle it into West Germany. It was broadcast the next day on West German television, and that was basically um, giving a signal to the rest of the country, they don't shoot, they don't let the tanks roll, we can demonstrate. And from then on, the demonstration became larger and larger. Then November 9, so... October is when the demonstrations really started hitting their peaks. November 9, the wall falls. Um, we can discuss who was, who was here, the, um, the initiator or the forces. But in, in essence, it was the power of the people and the pressure um, and the many people that left the country that forced the government to act and, and to open the wall after 29 years, 28 years, the wall was open. And the demonstration continued and also um, included the Stasi offices in the districts. And then throughout the month of November, um, it was noticed that the Stasi started to destroy evidence, started to destroy their records. And uh, 
In the December 4, a month after the wall fell, young women, actually in Erfurt in the morning, went to the district office and occupied the offices of the Stasi. I said, um, the power is breaking, the, um, this district or state attorney at the time wasn't acting, so they felt it was their need to act. And on that day, December 4, I think about a handful, six Stasi district offices were occupied by people. It was definitely um, uh, Erfurt in the beginning in the morning. It was Leipzig and Rostock, Suhl, and uh, um, I think Schwerin and um, another one in, uh, I think Dresden also followed. So people heard that that regular citizens took control of, of the records. And why did they do that? Because throughout the East German existence, it was always about the Stasi in the background, gathering information, doing something, manipulating, interfering in their lives. And knowing that the records were being destroyed meant we need to stop, we need to preserve the evidence, we can't just get rid of it. Um, so there was uh, just a physical act of occupying the offices and um, about a month later, six weeks later, the big ministry complex I showed in the beginning was also under control of the, the then formed citizens committees. So that was sort of within six weeks, the work of the Stasi had pretty much dissolved. With the fight over control over the records and the stopping of the destruction of the records began a fight over access to these records. The East German descendants always said we're, we're safeguarding these records now so that one day we can look into these records and figure out what happened. Um, people were quite skeptical about it. There was a lot of discussion back and forth, even within the dissident movement in February, March, um, within the citizens' committees who were under had the records under their control. But then some very decisive revelations came about. Two of the new opposition politicians from the newly formed um, SPD and what was called the Democratic Beginning um, were made known as Stasi informants. And all of a sudden, the need to look at these records to make sure who plays a role in the new society became crystal clear. Um, so this is um, March 18, 1919 as a date. That was the first and last free election to the East German People's Chamber, to the Volkskammer. And in the surrounding weeks or days of this election, when these two politicians were unmasked as former informants, the debate about accessing these records on a much more fundamental, broader base became really big. And that's why you also see, I, I took from the Spiegel a caricature, you see the records on top. This is the Stasi, it's all the information they have. And it's, it's hovering like a dark cloud, a UFO over what would uh, what was meant to become a more reformed democratic East Germany and soon be um, the eastern part of the then united Germany because uh, the events just took on um, really fast. But important was that there, there within the society and within the citizens committee and the political parties in the Volkskammer rose um, an understanding that these records were necessary to start democracy, because we needed to know what had happened in the past and who had been working for and within um, these uh, security apparatus. So then in the summer, unification was easily on the horizon. It went all really quickly. July 1st, the West German mark was introduced into East Germany. 
And the idea of making these records accessible suddenly didn't seem so exciting to the West Germans anymore. So in the course of unification, there were all kinds of um, uh, worries raised. You know, if we leave, if we have this information available, it's poisonous. People are gonna uh, fight each other. They're gonna go out for vengeance. Also, there's a lot of information on us, the West Germans, in these records. Um, you know, might not not be such a great idea to make all of that accessible. So the second fight for the records led to another occupation. This is a small group of dissidents in the archive itself, in the Lichtenberg archive. They went on a hunger strike, and uh, then the Volkskammer person who led the efforts to make the records accessible, his name is Joachim Gauck, was able in the unification um, uh, negotiations to make sure that the West German side agreed to the opening of the archive, which then actually happened on October 3, 1990, the day of German unification. So it took another year and a half to formulate a specific act, the Stasi Records Act, a legal base to make these records accessible. Because the, the complications for making very intimate, huge amounts of personal data on on many, many single people still alive and very much in the midst of their life to make them accessible had to fi be figured out. You couldn't just say, come Monday through Friday, nine to five and see if you find a good record. That wouldn't work. So the, the, the fathers or the, the, those, the men, mostly men again, that uh, worked on the Stasi Records Act were on the one hand data protection um, experts uh, that, that were very much uh, concerned about how do we make very personal private information available. And uh, the other idea was the transparency. Though We wanted to understand how, how was the mechanism of dictatorship? How did the Stasi work? How did they affect each and every single area of, of a society? So these two irreconcilable ideas, making something transparent and protecting the privacy of somebody else, were incorporated in the Stasi Records Act to such a successful degree that we still, 30 years after, 28 years after, work with this law that has been amended eight times, but is really phenomenal in the way that it um, guarantees the privacy of those who want to find out how their lives was changed by the interference of the Stasi, but make publicly transparent how the Stasi worked. Um, so for the first time ever, once the act was um, enacted, December 1929 in 91, the very first citizens could look into their files on January 2nd, 1992. Since I don't know really the audience, but maybe some of you might recognize some of the people on this, uh, on this photo from the very first access to records. The person on the right standing is Wolf Biermann, singer-songwriter who was expelled from East Germany in 1976, a very important figure that inspired a lot of further protest. And sitting next, the man with the beard is Jürgen Fuchs, also a very prominent dissident um, writer and psychologist. Uh, Katja Havemann, the widow of another important dissident, Robert Havemann. Pamela Biermann is the wife of Wolf Biermann. And the lady standing to the left is Eva Maria Hagen, the mother of Nina Hagen. So, but this is, th those were very prominent figures at the time. And they were chosen, obviously, also because it was considered a symbolic, historic, worldwide first that the citizens could look into the data that the secret organizations of a state had amassed on them. And so that's really the birth of what we consider today the agency. Interestingly enough, there was a construct chosen for this archive. It wasn't just a normal archive. The archive is called an agency, um, and it had a commissioner at the top, the federal commissioner for the Stasi records. 
title is really long. The, my official, uh, my office is called the Federal Commissioner for the for the State Securities for the Records of the State Security Service of the former German Democratic Republic. It's a three-line title, longest in the German uh, administration, but it, it came out of um, the the perspective from 1990, right? So it was um, the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi records, and the idea was we put a person in charge of these records. Then, and this person then has to make these records accessible according to the Stasi Records Act. Um, but this person is independent from any type of political interference. So Mr. Gauck, Joachim Gauck, um, who was a pastor from Rostock, who was very active in the peaceful revolution and then was the guiding light or guiding force um, through the Volkskammer days, became the first commissioner for 10 years. He was then followed by Marianne Böttler, who was also an opposition member and very active in the uh, Protestant churches against the regime. And then the current commissioner, Mr. Jahn, uh, who was um, uh, started his tenure in 2011, is actually the first political prisoner who, who runs this office. So there's obviously not the need for the best archivist or the best administrative organizer in the country to run this archive. It was important to give those that were the victims or had suffered from the regime a voice symbolically through this structure. And then there's a director who runs the administration, obviously, there's a head of archive, but it was, it was always for an archive unusually not so neutral because it had the idea that the access was forged in the peace revolution and people, every individual who had something to do with East Germany and felt their lives had been changed through the interference of the Stasi had the right to access. And that, um, that was sort of the principle um, that, that this archive embodies, which is not which is something that also led to many, many discussions. Historians don't like their records to be politicized. They don't like the records to have a purpose. Um, at the same time, it was so unique and it was never done before. And um, the, the addressing the injustices of the past was quite complicated on the legal area. There were many trials, um, trials of border shootings. The Politburo members, Erich Mielke, Erich Honecker, they had been in, in the Court of Justice. But uh, to gain justice was very complicated, if not even to say impossible, in relation to the crimes and justices and uh, yeah, horror and terror that had happened. So that's, uh, that's why this archive became actually a force that kept the dialogue about this past going and uh, became a symbolic um, idea of dealing with the past and, and respecting uh, the victims um, of the regime. So there we go. We are, are at the point of what we do today. This is a little video so that you can see a little bit more of the archive and the grounds. We start, we start with, with the grounds today. You see the historic photograph, not much has changed, but the archive is still at the um, East Berlin um, place where the Ministry for State Security used to be. It is an archive whose opening was the fulfillment of a demand of the peaceful revolution of 1989. The Stasi Records Archive, or as it is also known, the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi Records, in short BSTU. At the core, the BSTU is in charge of administering and making accessible the records of the Ministry for State Security of the disappeared East Germany. Those records were classified under the old regime and never meant to be public. Towards the end of East Germany, the Stasi had left behind an enormous amount of records, 111 kilometers of documents, as well as thousands of audio, video and photo records and a few data storage units who in their majority were destroyed. 
Those records were indexed by the archivists of the BSTU and kept from deteriorating, especially in regards to the film and audio files, so they could all be available for research. Almost 1,500 employees in 14 different locations in Berlin and the Eastern Federal States work at the BSTU. Their job is to open the archive to the purposes stipulated in the Stasi Records Act. One of the most important purposes is access to the records for those who have lived in East Germany. Reading how the state interfered in their lives gives them clarity over their fate. But the BSTU also authors reports for other agencies if they need records for a rehabilitation proceeding or to vet employees for a possible former secret activity for the Stasi. Researchers and journalists also have a right to access the Stasi records because they contribute with their publications to the understanding of the effects and mechanisms of the SED dictatorship in East Germany, and the BSTU itself contributes to a better understanding of the effects of the Stasi. Je besser wir Diktatur begreifen, umso besser können wir Demokratie gestalten. Die Stasi-Akten zeigen uns, wie eine ganze Bevölkerung durch einen Staat überwacht wurde. Und wir können heute in der Auseinandersetzung mit den Stasi-Akten unsere Sinne schärfen für die Gefahren, die auch in der Gegenwart drohen. The BSTU with its work concretely builds a bridge from the past to the present. Through a digital window into the archive, the online Stasi Media Tick through a new exhibition at the historic site, Access to Secrecy, through events and research as well as international exchanges about its effects, the Stasi Records Archive, creating public dialogue about the injustices of the past for Germany today. All right, so that's uh, pretty much the uh, third point, what have we done ever since in 1990? So um, the video is, is just there to give you a little bit better visual clues. But um, yeah, we, 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 we found our work on basically three columns. We are an archive that comes from the repression. Uh, we were born in the revolution and we help with reflection and reappraisal of the past um, and well into the future as I haven't really uh, touched on that, but the BSTU archive in figures, what have we, in the last 30 years, we've received about 7 million requests from access, among those about a good 3 million just for personal access. And to clarify, there's about 2 million people and then an additional million requests from people who repeatedly access the archive, because it took us quite a long time to figure out how the Stasi stored the information and make the records accessible because half of the records were still active on the desks of the Stasi officers when the revolution came. So we had to catalog that, look through and put it in the archive. So we're continuously still um, discovering new information. So it's worthwhile to ask a second or third time to see if something else has been found on your personal life. It amounts to around 111 kilometers of documents. Uh, for 40 years of documentation of secret police work. Among them, 41 million index cards, very important information storage, but also the key to the archive. Uh, that was the system the Stasi used. Uh, 1.7 million photographs alone that have no contexts. Many, many more photographs within the records. And um, 2,800 film and videos and 27,600 audio files and around 50 data projects. That is largely also destroyed, but the Stasi was quite advanced um, in the 80s in terms of preparing electronic data processing and working with computers. Um, so this is basically the core of the archive and the access, and here uh, is the Stasi headquarters today. 
where Milke once uh, um, took the parade, we today have uh, an, an exhibition called um, Revolution and Fall of the Wall, um, telling the people's history um, surrounded by the Stasi walls. We have younger people visiting the archive, and this is actually the desk of Erich Milke, today part of the Stasi Museum, run by a civics group. Again, one of those moments where if he knew who, who else would, would visit his office today, he would probably not be amused. Um, <laughs> And uh, we also try to um, make the content of the archive accessible through the Stasi Mediathek and through digitization. Um, obviously, there's problems with just digitizing the records with all this personal information, but there's a lot of information that um, signifies the way the Stasi worked. And then the um, exhibition on the archive, not everybody can actually access the, the, the stacks all the time. So we have uh, throughout the week a permanent exhibition on the archive to understand how the Stasi put records in the archive and what we do with it today. And so, yeah, past, present, future, those are just uh, the, the core ideas that surround this archive, right? The clarification of personal fate after uh, the end of a, a system that produced a lot of injustices. Transitional justice tool, that's what the archive became. It helped form a new society um, and keeping the memory of the past open for historical research, obviously, but it's also an interesting archive if you want to study the effects of, of a surveillance society. What happens when the state gathers a lot of data? How do you relate to that? What does it do to people? What can the state do with all of that? And you can study from the inside perspective the mechanisms of secrecy. How does, uh, how does it affect people that work within a ministry like that? What are their um, methodologies and their thinking and what does that do to people? Um, in a way, the archive then becomes a tool of human rights education. And as the commissioner said, how do we live today? What do we learn from this? What are our values today? How do we want to make decisions about society? Um, that's what this archive, but I think pretty much every archive and the UK National Archives too, uh, want to do, right? The records of the past are not just the past, they can act, be activated by everyone today to contribute to um, how we want to live and learn, take the chance to learn from, from history. And that's sort of the end of my presentation for now. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.